We're in a series called Law and Order, and basically, we're sort of slow walking through the Ten Commandments. We're at commandment number two, if you want to catch up, like to watch uh, the intro, and then the first one, you can go to the website, and those, uh, those messages are online. And actually, I had a guy today say, hey, I got up at five to, to listen to the first one so I could, you know, know what's happening today. So that's very nice. You don't have to do that to get up at five, but it's available. If you want to catch up, you can do that. Um, the first commandment was, have no other gods before me. And that kind of made some sense. Today's commandment, <laughs> we have a tendency in our modern thinking to go, well, I don't struggle with this one, so maybe we should just kind of blow by it and go to, on to number three. But let's read it, and then maybe we can make some sense of it. And perhaps it applies more than we think it does. But the second commandment is you must not make for yourself an idol. We're in Exodus 20, by the way. An idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And so when we think of the ancients, we think of idols looking like this and I'm going to confess I have none of these in my home, and I would suspect neither do you. And so we sort of think, okay, well, it's not a problem I have, therefore it's probably not something I need to be too concerned with. After all, we are modern thinkers, and when this law was written, uh, it made some sense to have the law. There was, uh, uh, you know, if you were, uh, in a, uh, if you were an Egyptian, uh, you know, the Israelites were slaves to Egypt. Well, there was a sun god. His name was Ra. And so if you wanted the sun to shine like we would today, uh, you pray to Ra and Ra would provide the sun. Or if you wanted a storm, uh, somebody evidently prayed to the, to the god Set, S-E-T, and that was the Egyptian god for the storm. And so uh, we know better than that. In fact, on my phone, there's an app that will tell me when the rain is going to stop, when it's going to start again. I can't believe how accurate they are with some of that stuff. And so, uh, we sort of go, okay, well that was for then. I'm not sure it's so much for now. Then we look at the New Testament. And the New Testament says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's like, well, okay, maybe it's not just an Old Testament thing. Perhaps it's still applicable today. Do y'all say applicable or applicable? How y'all say it here? It's mumbling. Uh, what do you say? Applicable? Okay. Applicable. Okay, so it's the same. Uh, we don't say it. We don't know. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that for me. I really appreciate it. Let's start with a definition. Okay, we kind of need a working definition. Uh, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside the only true God. It's sort of God plus is what it ends up being. Or f for, for the Israelites, it was a lot about um, everybody else is doing it. Uh, I can see this God and the gods they knew you could see. Now, there's a guy named uh, Dr. Stewart, uh, let me see what his name is, sorry, Doug Stewart, and he he talks about the reason idolatry was so uh, prominent back in ancient times. And they make sense. I want to walk through them real fast, okay? 
one, the attraction of idolatry for the ancients was uh, that, number one, it seemed like it was guaranteed. So the idea was, okay, there's a rule around this. If I do this, the God will respond this way. So if I offer a sacrifice to Ra, the sun will shine. If I offer a sacrifice to Set, uh, the storms will come, the rain will come. If I offer a sacrifice you know, to the fertility God, then the ground will produce and I'll have crops and that sort of thing. And so it was guaranteed. It was also a little bit selfish in that um, basically the gods could do lots of things, but they evidently couldn't feed themselves. And so the way you won favor with a god is you would provide them with food. And so it was, a, uh, you know, it was a quid pro quo. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. I'll give you what you want, God, which is food, if you will give me what I want. The third thing is it was easy. It was really, really easy. Because there, was no, there were no rules other than you make the offering and the God responds. There, there wasn't like a moral uh, code to any of this. And so I could live any way I want as long as I offered sacrifices to the gods. I could live any way I want. Well, there's some appeal to that. I mean, there's an appeal to that even today. I don't have to uh, adhere to some moral code because I can just do anything I want. And it was convenient. They, they franchised, <laughs> it's like Wendy's. Uh, they, had, they had places to offer to God, these shrines. They were every place. And so God said, uh, the, the Lord God said, hey, go to, go to Jerusalem, there's a temple there. This is where you worship. And they would have feasts, and we talked about these a couple of uh, months ago. Uh, you, they would have these seven annual feasts, and people would go to uh, Jerusalem for the feasts, and there was sort of this centralized location of, of worship. And the Israelites even got in trouble when they started franchising and having high places and other things. And so it was convenient and it was normal. Apart from the Jews, everybody did this. Everybody did it. The, the Canaanites, the, the uh, uh, Moabites, all, all of the ites, all of them are worshiping this way. They all have this set, this polytheism. Poly means many, this many God system rather than monotheism, this one God system. And for them, it was logical. Uh, every once in a while, it would work, and so, it's, okay, so I prayed to Ra and the sun shone, okay, then that, therefore it makes sense to me. It was sort of logical. Now, the last two are probably the most appealing of the two. It was indulgent. They lived in a culture where eating meat was, <laughs> was uncommon. Um, you know, you and I, if we can afford meat now, uh, we have it, right? We can get it anytime we want. Uh, in the ancient cultures, meat was, uh, um, was a luxury. You just didn't get a lot of it. Now, if, this, the, offering, if the sacrifice to the god included offering um, some sort of a meat, then you'd offer it to the god, and then you got to eat it. It's a win-win. And so if you didn't get meat very much, well, you were eager to offer to the God because you got to eat what you offer. It's like you get, it's a two for one. Uh, I make one sacrifice, not only do I get the blessing of the God, but I also get uh, the benefit of eating the meat. And finally, for many of these, it was erotic. Um, the thinking was this. You've got these gods in the heavens, and we want them to... Um, to cause the earth to be fruitful. 
We want them to, to cause the, the, the earth to, to produce. Uh, so, um, in order, the thinking was this. We need the gods to procreate so that the earth would uh, provide abundance. So, um, how do we get the gods to procreate? Well, we procreate. We have sex. And then the gods have sex, and that causes the earth uh, to be fruitful. That was the idea. That's appealing. Really, really appealing. And so, in Scripture, you will read about uh, shrine prostitutes or temple prostitutes. And men would go, mostly it was men, men would go to to these shrines, and they would have sex. There were prostitutes there, both men and women. And these men would have sex with either a a man or a woman. And the idea was this would would cause... (laughs) This sounds really weird, but it's almost like... We're providing uh, stimulus for the gods to do what they're seeing us do. It's almost like pornography, if you think about it. And so, it was quite appealing. And you see that the Israelites fall into this. They fall into most of these things, in fact. There's a debate about eating meat. and there's, We're going to talk about that in a minute. But there was also... It was easy, it was, it was convenient, it was normal, everybody else was doing it, so we're going to do it because it's normal and everybody else is doing it. And, and there's a, a principle behind this. How we see God, how we imagine God, shapes our behavior. If I think of God as um, an old man or a grandpa who kind of sort of winks and nods at sin, he's not really harsh, then it'll affect the way I behave. If I see God as a, um, a, a, a harsh taskmaster, then I will respond in a, in a different way. If he's winking at sin, then I'm, I'm, I'm a little looser in my morals. If he's harsh, I'm, I'm a little more stringent with my morals. And so it all kind of makes sense. How I see God will determine uh, how I behave. Now, the first commandment prohibited the worship of false gods. The second commandment prohibits the the wrong worship of the right God. And and you can do uh, the right thing the wrong way. And we see this from the jump with the Israelites. Do you remember the, the golden calf thing? Let's look at it. Aaron took gold, melted it down, molded it into the shape of a calf, and when the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know when this happened? All right, so the Israelites only knew gods they could see. That's all they knew. So Pharaoh, when they were in Egypt, claimed deity. Uh, he claimed to be a god. They, he was worshipped as a god, so they knew that Pharaoh, in their minds, people worshipped him as a god. And the Egyptians had gods. And so we talked about a couple of them already, Ra and Set and others. And uh, uh, Hopi was one. There were some others. Hopi is the one that I remember because, you know, don't worry, be Hopi. It just makes me giggle. Uh, And and so um, you have these gods, and they, they could see those. And then even Moses was their deliverer, and you could see him, right? And so they could see him. And did you remember, don't you, that um, uh, God was speaking and, and they said, time out, talk to Moses. Moses, you talk to God and tell, tell us what he said. We want you to be the mediator. They needed somebody with flesh and blood. They needed somebody they could see. And Moses goes on the mountain 
and he's gone for 40 days, and there's smoke, and there's fire up there, and for all they know, Moses is dead. And so now they need a God, they need something they can see. So they go to Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and they say, make for us a God. Now, look at this, look at this. By the way, this is so funny. It says, it says Aaron melted it down and molded it into the shape. When Moses comes down, we do this stuff so much, it's just funny to see it in Scripture. Moses comes down and he says to Aaron, what is this, this, this golden calf thing? And Aaron said, <laughs> Aaron said, dude, this is a rough translation, dude, I threw gold in the fire and out came this calf. It's like, no, that's not what happened, you molded it. Now, now look at what Aaron says. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf, and then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. He's worshiping the right God the wrong way. And we can do that. We get into that sometimes. We worship the right God the wrong way. And it's possible to do the right thing the wrong way. I heard about a funeral home in North Carolina. And they wanted to provide a space. In fact, they, they called it, we would like to get their mourners, they said, this is the quote, we'd like to provide a space where they can get their minds off what's going on. And so they thought they would build a little cafe, a little co coffee nook, <laughs> which I, I kind of understand it, but it's, it's a little bit weird to have it at the funeral home. Wi-Fi, you know, televisions, uh, so, you know, you're watching, uh, you're, you're burying grandpa, but you're, you're watching, you know, sports center. Uh, it kind of doesn't go. It's, it's, it's maybe the right idea, but did the wrong process. By the way, a radio station found out about it, and so they had a contest of what to name the coffee cafe at the funeral home. I'd like to read some of them to you. Uh, someone suggested they call it the last cup. Uh, I think that's nice. I like this one a lot, decoffinated. Uh, I think that's quite funny. Uh, if you're Catholic, you might like this, purgatory. Uh, very nice, super nice. Uh, a couple more. Uh, they call it the Still Above Grounds Cafe. Uh, that's good. And my, my, my personal favorite, time to meet your mocha. Uh, I just think that's brilliant. All right, let's go back. I, I, I digress. Idolatry is an attempt to shrink God into a manageable controllable, predictable form. And the one thing that I have known, that I have discovered about God, is that He is neither controllable, manageable, or predictable. I, I'd like to be able to do these things. I'd like to be able to, you know, say, well, I can manage Him or I can control Him. I can't even predict Him sometimes. There are some things... I'll give you an example. I was certain... I was certain... Uh, that my basketball team should win yesterday. That I predicted in my heart. God wants Kentucky to win. You want to know why? Because we're playing Arkansas, and God ain't even in Arkansas. So I, I was thinking, okay, uh, all right, this, is, this has got to happen. This has got to happen. Uh, I mean, they call the pigs home or something. I mean, they're, they're just heathens. And if you're from Arkansas, I love you. Uh, but I was like, we're, we're destined. I, I know we're going to win. And you know what? We did not win. And so, he's not as predictable. And I know that's a silly, but sometimes we think God is going to do what we want if we just do the stuff he wants. 
It's just like the way they worship the other gods. Hey, if I <laughs> I don't smoke and I don't cuss and I don't go with girls that do, you know, if I if I, I go to church, if I tithe, if I serve, if I drive the speed limit, <laughs> which really eliminates most of us, uh, if I if I do the things that I know I'm supposed to do, then God should. He, we don't say it out loud, but we think He owes me. He owes me. And, and God is he's not manageable or controllable or predictable. He is God. It's His world. And we fall into these patterns of idolatry. I want to talk about a couple of them today. One I, I just sort of call secular idolatry. This is, this, really, it's not really spiritual, but look at the text. Put to death, therefore, this is a, uh, Paul, he was a Christian writing to a church in a place called Colossae. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. These are idolatry, which is idolatry, he says. And we like the things that we can see, and it becomes God's for us. They take some different forms. Possessions are one form. You may have seen the bumper sticker on a car that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. That's a form of idolatry. It's saying, hey, if I get more stuff than you do, you're going to judge me better because of my possessions. George Barna did some research around this. It was really interesting. He found, he would ask people, how much, will, how much more would it take for you to be satisfied? How much more money would it take for you to be satisfied in your life? And he found the answer was typically eight to $11,000. And it really didn't matter how much you made. So people making $20,000 would say eight to $10,000 more, and people making $120,000 would say eight to $11,000, $10,000 more. It was sort of like, hey, if I get more, then I'll be happy, which sort of reflects what the Bible says about such things. I think I skipped one. Yeah, whoever loves money never has enough money. We, we just never have enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. We're just never satisfied. Jesus didn't talk a lot about idolatry, but he did say this, don't store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And he said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The slogan of Cracker Jacks, one of my favorite snacks, although I haven't had one for about 20 years. Uh, the slogan of Cracker Jacks is, the more you eat, the more you want. <laughs> it could be the slogan for a lot of things, honestly. The more we get, the more we have, the more we want. That's just how it works. George Bernard Shaw one time said, it's easy to find people who are 10 times more wealthy when they're 60 than when they were 20. It's very difficult to find people who are more happy, 10 times more happy when they're 60 than when they're 20. It's not a matter of wealth that makes you happy. I saw an interesting movie a couple of months ago. It was called All the Money in the World. And it was based on uh, real-life events. Uh, there was a young man who was kidnapped because his grandfather, a fellow you may have heard of, J. Paul Getty, who was a billionaire, they 
they kidnapped the grandson and they asked for a ransom, $17 million. Now, if you're a billionaire, $17 million for me and you is a lot of money, but for a billionaire, it wouldn't be that much. And so in the movie, and again, you have to understand, they take cinematic license, and so I'm not sure how accurate it is. But in the movie, they portrayed J. Paul Getty as being much more concerned with possessions than he was with restoring his grandson. And it was interesting. He had a logic behind it. He said, look... If I pay for this grandson, I'll be paying for all my grandkids because they'll all be kidnapped. Well, that makes sense. I mean, there's some logic to that. But the problem is, the way they made, the way they couched the story is that Mr. Getty cared more about possessions than he did people. And it's easy to do. We can do it. I mean, not to that extent, perhaps, but we can do it. We start to think of our homes not as a, a place to keep us warm and dry, but rather a, a status symbol. We start to think of our cars, which really are designed to get us from point A to point B in the safest fashion possible. We start to think of them as objects to be admired. We think of our wardrobes as a statement's. We think of our successes as something to be lauded and praised and admired. We live in a culture where we talk about being a self-made man, and I love what John Bright said about that. He said the problem with self-made men is that often they want to worship their maker. We become inward focus, and it reduces us to what we have. We start to judge people by what, we, what they have, not who they are. Another one is sex. Possessions and sex. It's everywhere and it sells. One of the challenges of the Christian today is to live in a world where there is uh, kind of this uh, incredible pr promise, pr promiscuous environment. To live a, a wholesome, holy life sexually is very difficult. I read about a little boy, and he was at the uh, breakfast table with his dad, and the dad said, son, I think he was eight years old, son, what did you learn at school today, or yesterday? And the little boy said, we learned how to make babies. Well, the dad, <laughs> dad was shocked, and uh, the cereal came out of his nose, you know, it was like, you know, like, oh, he said, well, son, what do you mean we learn how to make babies? And he said, well, you drop the Y, and you had I-E-S. Uh, it's simple. That is so funny. I don't know why. Nobody, first service, nobody laughs. I, I'm going to have to. I might have to trade you all in. That that's funny. Sorry, it's funny. Maybe not that funny. The other one's entertainment. I'm going to read a, a paragraph of a, an article I read the other day called "Breaking the Idol of Entertainment." L listen to this. It may not apply to you. You might know somebody that this applies to. You aimlessly unlock your smartphone for what might be the millionth time today and scroll through your Facebook feed. After 20 minutes, you ask yourself, what was I looking for? Then later in the evening, you finally sit down and relax in front of the TV. You know you need to catch up on sleep, but before you realize it, you've already watched three episodes of the top trending series, half of which you missed because you were scrolling through feeds on your phone. And Netflix is launching you directly into the fourth episode, and you think, uh, maybe just one more. We live in a world where we are constantly entertained. 
when I go to, into a waiting room, let's say I'm at the dentist or I'm at uh, the, the haircut place, uh, haircut store we call it, uh, if I'm in a waiting room and there are people there, it is shocking to see somebody not on their phone. They're always on their phone. People are ever, In fact, I sit there, I, I leave my phone in the car just so I won't look at my phone. I don't want to be that person. And I'll look at people and I'm like, they are really, really into their phone. Or, or you, you're driving up Wade Hampton and you get to the stoplight and you look over at the car next to you and they're on their phone. And I'm thinking to myself, you must be really important because... I mean, like, you got a text from Joe Biden who's asking you about Ukraine, you know, because only somebody uh, that important needs to be on their phone while they're at the stoplight. Or, I've got a 15-year-old and I'm teaching her to drive, and we're on points at highway sometimes. And we'll pass somebody, and they'll be on their phone. And I'm like, holy cow. What, what is so important <laughs> That you can't drive. Look, I have enough trouble uh, driving, concentrating, and I don't have distractions. I can't imagine. Uh, what I, I love the ones that try to sneak it. <laughs> Could be you. They're driving, but it's down low. So they're like this. I love that. That's my favorite. It's as if... We can't be alone with ourselves. Like, <laughs> I, I can't just sit. You know, Sabbath means rest. It, all, it means rest from everything. I'll go home after this is over. I'll take a nap because this is the nappiest nap day ever. I mean, good, I'm just praying now that it rains through my nap because uh, it's great. I'll take a nap and then... Uh, Miriam and Elise, they're at a volleyball tournament, so <laughs> they won't bother me. Uh, so, oh, they're not, they might watch. I mean, <laughs> it'll be a bummer. Uh, that's what I mean. And I'll try to scrounge up some lunch or something, I don't know. And I'm going to do my best today to Sabbath, to just rest. It, it's, it's physical rest, but it's also mental rest. Sometimes we just need to unplug for a few minutes, a few hours. When's the last time you read a book? When's the last time you just sat and thought? It, it's just so uncommon. And we have to ask ourselves, is entertainment, is it holding sway in my life? It, am I adjusting my schedule around being entertained? So I talked about Kentucky playing basketball yesterday. They played at 2 o'clock. Now, 2 o'clock is in the middle of the day, and I had stuff to do. So I recorded it. This is brilliant, by the way. I, I'm hardly ever brilliant, but this is brilliant. I recorded it, and then I didn't look at my phone to see how we were doing. And then people are texting me, and I don't pay attention, because you know, my kids want to talk about the games. Like, I'm not, I'm not texting you. And then it was over, and I saw the score, and I deleted. Uh, I didn't waste. That's two hours I didn't lose in my life for watching a game that we didn't even win. So I'm thinking about doing that every time. I mean, why watch it? And then if you win and you know you won, well, then you can watch it, and you, you it doesn't matter how far behind you get. It's great. There, there's a brilliance to 
not ordering your world around something that's on television, not being entertained all the time. It's okay. It has become an idol for people. There's also something I, I want to call sacred idolatry. That's when we, we do things because of tradition, that sort of thing. Look what it says. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? And then he goes on to explain, children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Um, spiritual idolatry is, we, we develop these systems of thinking and traditions that we find are more binding on us than they really need to be. When I lived in New Mexico, um, I came home one Sunday after church and my neighbor her husband uh, was a salesman and he worked out of town for like months at a time. He would be gone for quite a while. And her yard needed to be mowed. I knew it needed to be mowed. I could see it. It's my next door neighbor. She's right beside me. And I, as, as sure as I'm standing here, I could hear the Lord saying, you ought to mow her grass for her. She needs some help. You should help her. Now, I chose not to. It's not because I didn't have a mower. I had a fine mower. It had a bagger, and I could have done it pretty quickly. Her yard wasn't very big. It wasn't because it was a big project. It wasn't even because I was tired. I was tired, but I certainly had enough energy to mow a small yard. But I... <laughs> it still bothers me. This is funny. This is like 25 years ago. It's a really long time ago. It still bothers me today. I didn't mow it because I was afraid of what somebody might say if they saw me mowing a yard on a Sunday. I heard God's voice and I ignored it because I was afraid of other voices who might be offended. We do God a disservice when we don't listen to His voice. They had this debate in the first century church Paul talks about it here in Romans. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And the matter that they were disputing over was whether you could eat meat that had been offered to idols. So in that culture, you had Christians and non-Christians, and the non-Christians still offered sacrifices uh, to idols, and then they would take that meat and they would sell it in the market. And if, <laughs> I don't know if they had a sign on it that says uh, idol meat, you know, I don't know if that's how they knew, but if you knew it was idol meat, then some Christians would say, you can't eat that meat. And Paul said, idols are nothing. Meat offered to idols can be eaten. I like this because I don't want to waste anything. But then Paul says, however, if eating meat offends others, I will choose to not eat meat. I'll choose. I will not quarrel over disputable matters. There, in church circles, there are disputable matters. How you do church, what you sing, what translation of the Bible you use. I went to Russia uh, 15, 20 years ago on a mission trip. 
But worship services were quite different there than here in that particular church. I don't know, I can't speak for all of Russia. I just know about that one particular church, which was a Baptist church like we are a Baptist church. The service lasted four hours long. So today we're going to try that. Uh, I've got some extra music, come up with some more stuff. I mean, if we did a four-hour long service, we would have it for about two weeks and then nobody would come back. But they had, best I can remember, there were like 12 songs. Uh, I was one of four or five preachers. <laughs> and the, mine, then they had to be translated. Um, I made a joke about Borsk and they loved me. I killed, I killed in Russia. I talked about potatoes and Borsk and they thought I was great. Uh, uh, then they had special music, and then after the service was over with, you talk about uh, Sabbathing, they had a meal together. Uh, where, guess what we had? Borsk uh, and potatoes. That's all you have over there. And we ate, and it was wonderful, and it was different, and that's just the way they do it. I was in Tanzania a few years ago on a mission trip. They don't do church anything like the Russians or us. This church was built literally on a rock. Uh, they had babies in there. Uh, it was loud, and the music was loud, and, and it, was, <laughs> it was the way they do it. It was wonderful. There, there's not a way to do it. And so we begin to think, okay, the only way to worship God is this way, because God is in a box. God isn't in a box. God did show us what He should look like or what He does look like. There's this perfect rendition of God. The Son reflects God's own glory. His name was Jesus, and He was the perfect self-portrait of God. He was just like God. See, if, if we can put God in a box, let's say the box is called a church, then we can come visit Him once a week. But after we visit God at church, then we go out the doors and we don't have to do anything. I mean, we're going to visit Him again next Sunday. But between now and next Sunday, I can live the way I want to. It's a lot like idolatry of old. I can just live the way I want to until I come back to the box again, to the church again. Solomon built this amazing temple and he was very impressed with himself. And then he said this, Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. It was as if he was saying, we cannot put God in a box. We just can't do it. Um, so if we went ahead and read the rest of Exodus about this particular... This is, there's kind of a little tricky part. Let's, let's deal with it and then we'll be done. The next couple of verses, you must not bow down to them, we read this already, or worship them, these idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sin of the parents upon their children, and their entire family is effective, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. There's a sort of teaching out there about generational curses and that sort of thing. But the Bible also teaches the child will not be punished for the parents' sins, nor the parents for the sins of the children. And so, which is it? Well, counselors find that when, um, when a person is a, 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 a abusive, 
like a child molester, oftentimes they were molested as a child. It sort of follows them from one generation to the next. Alcoholism is the same way. Both of my grandfathers, my paternal and my uh, maternal grandfathers, were both alcoholics. Now, my mom and my dad, they saw what that did to their families and they vowed as Christians to never let that happen to them. And so, they were teetotalers. They just decided we're not going to even tempt fate. When I was in high school, I began to dabble in alcohol. And this is what I know about myself. I didn't drink to drink, I drank to get drunk. And I was on the course that my grandfather set... And so I also just said I'm going to abstain because I could feel it in my spirit. That was how it was going to turn out for me. So the sins of my grandfather were skipping a generation and they would have found me. And so instead of doing that, I decided that's just not even worth it for me. But then God says the sins follow the parents because there is a consequence that's long-lasting, not just the person, not just for the person, but for his family as well. But his, his hesed, his loving kindness, lasts for a thousand generations. It's basically forever. God loves us forever. So let's end with a couple of questions. Let's give us something to think about as we go into the rain and go home. Where do you get your sense of self-worth? It's a really, really important question. Is my self-worth determined by what I own, what I do, uh, is my self-worth uh, where I live? Is it wrapped up in what I drive? That's a really important question. The second and final question is, what's your source of security? What causes you to be secure? So today, uh, I haven't looked at the news this morning, but as of yesterday, um, U- Ukraine was being invaded by Russian troops. And let's suppose that you, uh, we, are living in Ukraine, and the question comes up, what is your source of security? Would it be in your government or your leaders? Maybe you're a prepper and you have 24,000 bottles of water and some of those packages of meals that will last 25 years, and you are your source of security. You have a bunker That's a great question. What, what is your source of security? Because a lot of times that becomes the thing you idolize. Hey, I have prepared, therefore I'm smarter than everybody else, therefore uh, I'm better than everybody else. We're going to close in just a minute. We're going to pray for uh, the world and the situation that we're in. But as we close, let's think through, what am I really depending on? to get me through the next day, and the next hour, and the next month, and the next year? What, what is my source of security? Because if it's anything other than God, it's an idol. If it's anything other than God, it shouldn't be there. Good news is, today is a day that we can repent and make that right. And if you want to come talk to me after the service, I hang out right here. I'm, I'm happy to chat. I take my microphone off and we, we can have a private conversation. If you need to do that, I'm happy to do that for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day that you've provided for us. Help us to be attentive to your voice always. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.